I, I always tell students that a good thesis project is something that will plague you for the rest <laughs> of your life. Like it will, it, it will, it will keep you up at night forever and ever. Hi. Hello. 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 And welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. I'm Rebecca Wagner here with the host, Adam Wagner. Hey, Adam, who's on the podcast today? Happy New Year's. It's a new year. This is the first podcast of the new year, and I think we have a great guest on. So this person grew up in Ohio, kind of fell into architecture, went to the university in Cincinnati, and didn't want to end up in academia, but then went to Rice for grad school and soon after started teaching and hasn't looked back. He's taught in Ohio and Minnesota and then took over as the architecture department chair at CU Denver in 2019. Mark Swackhammer. Mark Swackhammer. Now, this is somebody I, I really like and I'm able to work with a lot uh, when I teach at the school. I think he's he's brought a great amount of uh, energy and rigor into the school. And, you know, I don't know if it was sucking up or just being friendly, but but I really stalked him before he came and I was excited that he came to the school. And I actually uh, stalked him on Facebook and sent him a message and had him join one of my class reviews like the day he landed in, in Denver. Um, but he's he's just a, a great leader and an architect. Um, we get into talking about some of his theories of architecture and diving into his, some of his projects. But, you know, we, we didn't even get into some projects like uh, his zippered wood project, which won an R&D award and was on the cover of Architect Magazine in 2020. So check that out as well. But yeah, this is a, it's, I'd say it's a, a deep dive into architecture and academia and projects, but an enjoyable conversation for me. Nice. I'm excited for this one. Yeah. Cool. Enjoy. Many of our listeners are familiar with Herman Miller, a 100-plus-year-old company known for its rich legacy in modern designs, ergonomics, and thought leadership. For Colorado, Workplace Resource is the certified platinum dealership representing Herman Miller, and we are proud to support the Colorado design community. Whether you are in the market for a functional and stylish home office setup or exploring a broader solution to outfit your entire workplace, we are the partner you can trust. The local teams with Herman Miller and Workplace Resource can connect you with research and insights, create a high-performing work environment, especially in this current shift with the way we work. We encourage you to explore our future of Work Hub for more information, and the link is in the bio. Conceptual Thought Starters. Not sure what type of solution works best? Browse our planning ideas to start the conversation. You can download Revit files and full tools to really help dial in your solution for your floor plan. And lastly, full project design, specification, and installation for small businesses to full campuses. Workplace Resource is really the place to begin. Be sure to connect with our team. We look forward to supporting our design partners in the Colorado community. And in the meantime, please enjoy architecting. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. 
Check it out. Well, hey, how's it going? Good. Yeah. Good. Thanks for having me. This is this is really uh, I'm, I'm honored to be a part well, of it. You were you were always uh, <laughs> going to be one of the guests, and I just uh, I needed to s- split up enough of the university people, so it's just not all university because I could easily easily do that. Uh, <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. I understand. No, it's it's great that you have a mix of practicing architects and in academics and people who span across. Yeah. Keeps it interesting uh, for me. Yeah, for sure. What What'd your day look like today? What's the day of Mark's Black Hammer look like? Um, it's been a busy week. Yeah, it's been a busy week. I've been um, getting ready to, which I can talk about a little bit, um, but I'm getting ready to pitch some of my research from the lab to the provost at the mm. university. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, the provost likes your research, then it feels a little bit like uh, American <laughs> or something, but if the provost likes your they research, give you, a rose. Then, uh, yeah. you know, there's yeah. funding. Yeah, exactly. Think... Then there's like fun, fun, potential funding behind it. Um, so I've been getting ready for that and um, I'm, I'm teaching a, a class with Sarah Aziz. Hmm. And so I've been working on that and, um, and then, you know, we're next year is our accreditation year. So we're kind of doing a lot of stuff to get ready for that as well. Um, I, uh, and I also sit on the AIA board. So we had a long half, half day, um, (laughs) board meeting today. So that took up a bunch of my time. Um, I don't know. It's a busy week. It's all going by in a flash. Yeah. And then I, then I get to slam this in on you on a Thursday afternoon. (laughs) Yeah. It looked like it was going to be, uh, you know, a, a pretty easy week back when I said, back when I decided on this date and then, uh, then it just filled in. I yeah. It always stinks up. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I know I, I listened into a, a Christopher Kelly talk that you gave one time and you were just saying how much you didn't like to talk about yourself. And I was like, I'm going to get that guy on here and <laughs> have him start talking about himself. So, so in that, in that spirit, the first question, who are you? Yeah. Yeah. So my name is Mark Swackhammer and, um, I'm the chair of the architecture department here at uh, CU Denver. It's the only accredited architecture program in the state. So, um, we pull from not just Colorado, but also the surrounding region. Um, and I'm also uh, a uh, practitioner. Um, I have a, a research practice with uh, a colleague of mine, Blair Satterfield, who teaches up at the university, uh, up at uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And uh, our practice is called Human Practice, which is kind of in a way, an obsolete name now because it was a mashup of the two cities where we live when we formed the practice. So uh, uh, he was living in Houston and I was living in Minneapolis. So it's a, it's a mashup of those two cities, but with the double meaning of, of being human-centered. So um, human is spelled H-O-U-M-I-N-N. Uh, and then uh, I also, uh, related to my work in human practice, I, I started a research lab when I arrived here called Lodo Lab. I can talk about all that stuff as we as we talk this afternoon. Yeah, that's that's kind of who I am. I I before I came here, I was at the University of Minnesota for 15 years, 
Um, and I got my undergraduate degree from University of Cincinnati and my graduate degree from Rice University. Down hmm. So where did, where did you grow up? Where did you come from? I grew up in Huron, huh. Ohio, right on Lake Erie, about an hour west of Cleveland. Um, it's a little, little tiny town, lake town. Um, it, was a, it was a cool place to grow up, but it, it was a pretty sheltered place. Um, uh, but I, but I, I, I enjoyed it. My parents still live there and I go back and visit. Um, so when I went to college, when I went to Cincinnati, that was the first time I really, you know, spent any significant time in a, in a big diverse, um, you know, dirty dynamic city. And, uh, uh, it was a big, um, learning curve for me in a way that it wasn't for some of my classmates. So it was, it was interesting to go from little tiny town to Cincinnati. Did you go there for architecture? Um, Did you know that's what you wanted to do? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Cincinnati, um, to go to architecture school and, um, I got a B arc, which is a, um, a terminal degree in architecture. You can get licensed with a B arc. Um, but I felt like I, I still had more I wanted to learn and I wanted to get a different perspective from the perspective that I had um, gleaned from uh, Cincinnati. Cincinnati was a very, it's a, it's a cooperative education school. So you, you alternate going, um, going from um, uh, school to, to work and you, you have like four different job experiences while you're in school, as you go through its part, it's a, it's a requirement of the program. So to graduate from Cincinnati, you have to go through the, the co-op program. Um, and it's kind of known nationally. It's one of the oldest co-op programs in the, in the country. Um, so by the time I graduated, I had worked at four different firms and I had worked on construction drawings and done field work. And <clears throat> it's a very kind of nuts and bolts. It, at the time, it was a very kind of nuts and bolts education that I got. I really knew how to draw. I really knew how to put buildings together. Um, but I felt like I wanted more on the conceptual end of, of the discipline. I wanted more theory and a different way of looking at mm-hmm. the world that I knew architecture also offered, which I got a little bit of at Cincinnati, definitely. Um, so, but, but, but Rice at the time was a, a very um, dynamic program with a new dean and um, super uh, conceptually, theoretically driven Um really fun time to go there. And so I, I was, I was really, it really expanded my perspective and, in, in how I think about architecture. Yeah. And what about that choice? So you kind of came from a smaller place in Ohio. Uh, how did you, how did you know architecture was a thing or that, that that's what you wanted to do? And then, you know, within Ohio and around Ohio, yeah. there's a lot of great schools. And how did you decide on Cincinnati? Yeah, those are great questions. I mean, uh, for me, I kind of, in, in my parents, I mean, we both thought, we all thought the same way. We, we thought of, well, well I, had, I had kind of two areas where I excelled in school. One was hmm. math and one was hmm. art. And I naively, my parents naively thought, well, a discipline that is at the intersection of art and math is architecture. And I, I guess it's not that naive. I mean, it kind of is true. Um, you can, you can, you know, think about, um, 
architecture from from both a quantitative and a qualitative way, from both a, a left brain and a light and a right brain perspective. Um, of course, once I got into architecture school, it was completely different than what I thought it was going to be. I mean, it, as I think it is with all of us who go through architecture yeah. school, it just kind of blew my expectations. But that was why I initially wanted to go into architecture school, is I thought it combined these two things pretty nicely. Um, and, it, and it did to an extent. I got to, you know, really, I, I focused more on the art side of things when I went to architecture school. The, the drawing and the modeling and the making were all the things that really attracted me to it and, and got me energized about architecture. Um, Cincinnati, I think the co-op mm. program is what really excited me. It's, it, it really prepared you. I never had, I never intended to go to be an academic. I never intended to go into take my career into the university. Um, I, I always thought I would be a practicing mm. architect. And so, um, you know, if you want to be a practicing architect, there's few programs that prepare you to be a practicing architect, I think, as well as Cincinnati mm. does. Um, interestingly, Rice and their undergrad program actually has a preceptorship program, too, where you go and you, you work. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that, that's what attracted me to Cincinnati was that I would get so much job experience while I was going through school. And, it, and then you really kind of identified that sort of hole within your undergrad education and, and wanted to go, you know, hone those skills more. Was that, did you go gr directly from undergrad to grad? And then w why Rice? Like how, how, what was that decision like? Yeah, I don't, looking back on it, I don't really know why I decided <laughs> that. I just, it was more of a gut yeah. decision. I was like, I think I need to go to grad school. And even like a bunch of my buddies, a bunch of my friends who I'm still good friends with now are like, why are you going to grad school? And I was like, well, I don't really know. I need some more students. <laughs> just want to go to grad and, yeah. school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, even then, at that point, when I was going to grad school, I was like, not, it was nowhere on my radar that I would be uh, a teacher hmm. or an academic. I just, I just wanted to get a different perspective. And I just had it in my brain and in my gut that I wanted more education and I wanted a different set of perspectives. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I, um, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure why I did it even, even like to this day, but I'm glad I did. I mean, Rice was amazing. I had some of my most formidable teachers at Rice and it really, it really um, opened my perspective about what, what is architecture, what architecture can be. I mean, when I was there, there were people there like Sanford mm. Quinter and Bruce Mao and Michael Bell and Lars mm. Larup and Mark Womble mm. and uh, Lindy Roy and um, just all these, all the, Richard Ingersoll, all, all these like mm. legendary people who were, it was, a, it was just a amazing confluence of people who were there. Oh, Young Ho Chang, who is like now, um, you know, I mean, just an amazing, amazing person. Um, so all these amazing teachers were there at that time and really opened my mind about, you know, architecture can be a book or, mm. or architecture can be a story or, um, you know, architecture can be an object. Um, you know, architecture doesn't have to be what we conventionally normally think of architecture as being. And it also, um, you know, one of your, one of your questions that you, that you sent me ahead of time was about, um, what was one of the most kind of challenging, I think one of the most challenging things you've experienced, um, and, and 
I, it, it made me think about when I first got to school at Rice, I kind of thought I was, you know, a hot pencil and had the world figured out and thought I could do everything. Yeah. And I was a great designer and, you know, I, I, I you know, I was, um, you know, it, it, it was my gift to Rice <laughs> University that I would go there or something. Yeah. I don't know. I know but, uh, it, you know, I was quickly disabused of that, of that, um, of that notion that I had the world figured out. And it was because of a really, and I, I can't remember her name, but this incredible studio teacher kind of took me aside. And, and, you know, I, I was, I was designing these very competent buildings for her studio. And um, I, I even remember making these really beautiful models and, and I think they were, you know, competent mm. and interesting. And, um, but she took me aside and she was like, you can do you can do this in your sleep. Why are you in hmm. grad school? And, and it's not, you know, I, I know, I know why you should be in grad school, but I want you to think about it for yourself. Like, what do you want out of this? Because you're just doing this thing that you know how to do already. And if you're going to keep doing that, you should just go be an architect. But if there's something more that you want out of school, if there's something, if there are bigger questions that you want to ask, and if you want to, push yourself outside of your comfort zone and take risk and be uncomfortable, then, then you're in the right place. But if you're just going to keep doing the, these things that you're doing, I'll give you an A and that's fine, but you're, it's a waste of your time and it's a waste mm. of my time. You're not, you're not asking any bigger questions. And that was a really like challenging conversation for me, but it was something that I, I still remember to this day you know, her kind of taking the time and having the generosity to take me aside and, 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 you know, provoke me with that question. Like, just kind of, why are you here? What are you doing? Yeah. And it's something I try to take forward and, and, and bring to my own students. You know, you, you can, you can problem solve and you can, you can, you know, meet the, the, the requirements of a studio brief and do all, check all the boxes that are necessary to make a competent building. But, um, you know, really impactful work comes out of um, asking questions and 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 um, uh, uh, not not solving problems, but problematizing. And I, I talk to my we talk to my students about that all the time. So um, that came from that conversation, and it still it sticks with, it sticks with me today. So I guess that's all circling back to you know rice and and that's why i'm so glad i went to rice because that it there were teachers at cincinnati who definitely encouraged me to think that way but it didn't stick with me until i went mm -hmm. to grad school it didn't i didn't understand it it didn't it didn't it didn't land on me until i until i um matured a little bit so then what did you do that with that challenge like how did that manifest itself in the rest of rice and like going beyond rice yeah yeah, I mean, I, I think it came out in my thesis project at Rice. Um, and, you know, to this day, we don't have a thesis at at um, CU Denver um, in our grad program. We have a kind of a capstone project, but we don't have a thesis. And, but at Minnesota, we had a thesis. And at Cincinnati, where I first taught, we had a thesis. And I I always tell students that a good thesis project is something that will plague you for the rest of your life. Like it will, it, it will, it will keep you up at night forever and ever. And, um, and it will be a question and it will be an open-ended question that you'll always ask, um, in everything you do. And, and for me that, that, 
that happened with my thesis at Rice. Uh, it was, it, it was, I, I didn't design a building. I didn't, I didn't really, um, do architecture in the traditional sense in my, in my thesis. I really used my thesis as an opportunity to ask questions about a material mm. and the material in that case was plastic. And I was really interested in, um, the behavioral tendency tendencies of the material and how the material can push back on your hand as, as, um, push back on, on the willful hand hmm. of the designer and inform the work as much as you as the designer. And that's a question that Blair and I still ask to this day in our, in our own um, work is, you know, what is, how, how can the, how, how can the material, um, how can a material be an equal contributor in, in an author in the work? Um, as much as, as you as the designer, what is it telling you? What, how is it pushing back and how is it, um, unfolding and unfurling the work in a, in, in, in a way that, um, if you were just willfully creating form and pushing space around, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do, um, if that material wasn't present. So that, that was kind of the thrust of my, um, of my thesis at Rice. And again, it's a, it's a question that isn't answerable and it, but it's one that I, I keep um, exploring with, with every project I, I work on to date. Yeah. So that's pretty different from putting together a competent building. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. And I got really interested in like industrial design through that thesis. And I got really interested in material science. Um, I got interested in the scientific process, which is about, you know, setting up a set of questions without necessarily knowing the answer and seeing how those questions unfold. Um, yeah. So then what did that do to your career tra trajectory of going from wanting to be a practical architect and then you, you graduate with this plastic thesis and uh, what mm -hmm. happens? Yeah, you're, you're asking good questions. Thanks. Um, I, uh, I, 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 what, what I did, well, it, it, first of all, it, it made me interested in, um, in the kinds of practices that mm -hmm. ask questions. So right away, it, you know, it informed the kind of, the kind of architect I wanted to be and the kind of architects I wanted to work for. Um, I, I was, I was much, much more interested in, um, discursive practices than I was in maybe more more commercial practices. And that, that's not a, that's not a, um, a judgment at all on commercial practice. Um, uh, it's maybe just a different category of, mm -hmm. of practice. And, uh, so I, I got really interested in, in practices that were more discursive. So I, I worked with, um, a really small firm called Oliver mm -hmm. Ray, um, uh, which isn't around anymore. Uh, uh, Doug Oliver and, and Jim Ray were the, the, the two partners of the firm and, um, they had won a, a PA award and they had won a, you know, an on the boards, um, award, um, in architect magazine or something like that. And they were in Houston doing really, really interesting, provocative, uh, uh, residential work. And so, um, I, I started out with them and, um, Doug to, still to this day teaches and he taught at A&M for a while. He went to school at 
both Doug and Jim went to the GSD and came back to Houston mm. to practice. And um, Doug taught at AM for a while. Now he teaches at Rice. Um, and I'm, I'm still in touch with those guys. But uh, that's where I met Blair. Um, Blair and I both worked at Oliver Ray. And um, it was a it was a blast working there. I mean, it was the kind of firm where you just work, you know, like 80 hours a week. And I don't advocate it. And I don't think it's a good thing. But it was, yeah, um, it was, it was, uh, um, submersive and, and, um, intense and, um, you know, pretty, a pretty, um, formative experience for me, um, early in my career. Um, and then, uh, and I, and I still like think the world of those guys and they, they, they really, um, were incredible mentors and teachers for me. Um, and then I went to work for my, from there, I went to work for my um, former teacher, Mark mm -hmm. Womble, um, who I still am friends, friends with also to this day. And Mark, um, has a firm, uh, joined up with a more commercial firm called, um, Bricker Kennedy in Houston. And Blair and I actually both went to Bricker mm -hmm. Kennedy at kind of around the same time and, um, and worked there. And again, we won some PA awards and, and, um, you know, some local AA awards and did some really nice work there. Um, and, you know, I would, while those firms both had commercial aspirations, I think they were first and foremost idea-driven firms, firms that were about ideas and, and, um, and, and the idea was, was the, was really the important thing. And, and, um, you know, that's the last place I really worked in a serious way, um, in terms of being a, a practitioner, um, before I went into academia. Where, where'd you go and what was that decision like? So the, we just had, um, my, my teacher and mentor and friend, uh, lecture last night, um, at CU Denver, Daniel mm. Friedman. And, uh, it was, man, it was an amazing lecture. Super, super provocative. Um, he, he was my most form. He's my most formative teacher at Cincinnati. And, uh, he just, um, send me an email, I think out of the blue, just asking me if, if I would be interested in, um, in cutting my teeth with teaching. And if so, he had a one year, an open one year, um, visiting position for me. And, um, my wife and I just had our, our first child, um, our daughter Maeve. And I, we, we, we were living in Texas. We were both from Ohio living in Texas. And we thought, well, this kind of kills two birds with one stone. It helps us move back to Ohio because um, the, the job was at University of Cincinnati. So it helps us move back to Ohio. And um, I'd been doing, you know, sitting on reviews at Rice and had just started to mull the idea that maybe I would do maybe some part-time teaching at some point. Like maybe I would keep being a practitioner, but also um, teach a little bit, you know, here and there. So I was like, wow, you know, and I, and I think the world of, of Daniel and, so I, uh, I, um, said, sure. And I sent him, you know, my portfolio and sent him, you know, some, some thoughts on what I'd like to teach. And he hired me, um, to, to teach in a, in a one year visiting position. And my attitude was like, well, if I don't like it, I can always just go back to being a practitioner. I could try it for a year. It's a one year visiting position. And, um, if I don't like it, I can, I can, I can, um, slip back into into um the practice world um 
yeah, so that's that's how it started, and I I loved it. I mean, I loved it right out of the gate. It, uh, I always take the attitude that um, you know you should you should migrate towards or or follow the things that scare mm. you the most. Um, you know, uh, and and you know while teaching was really um, intriguing and interesting and and uh, alluring to me, it, it also just scared the mm. shit out of me. I, I mean, I was so petrified the first day I stepped in the classroom, you know, it really pushed me outside my comfort zone. It pushed me to, um, think about things in new ways. It, 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 it was, it was, a, a, a an amazingly, um, energizing and, and both, both scary and rewarding experience at the same time. And it just felt like the place that I should be. How long, how long were you there? At Cincinnati, well, uh, I was there for a year, and then um, I applied uh, for a tenure track position at Cincinnati, mm -hmm. and then at a bunch of other schools. At that point, after the first year, Cincinnati had one open position for a tenure track job, and then um, uh, I got offered a couple other tenure track positions. But I ended up staying at Cincinnati and uh, stayed there for two more years. So I was at Cincinnati for a total of three years, and then. Again, because of Daniel, uh, Daniel was good friends with Renee Chang, who was the new uh, head of the architecture school of architecture at University of Minnesota. Um, they had had a failed search. They they interviewed a bunch of people, but but didn't weren't weren't happy with any of the candidates. So Renee again called me out of the blue and asked me to apply for uh, um, a tenure track position after two years at University of Minnesota. So I, on a, on a whim, I just flew up there, did the interview thinking, you know, it's good practice. I honed my portfolio, my resume and my dossier and polished it up and thought, well, this is a good experience for me to interview and went up there and, um, man, nobody sells a position like Renee Chan. I mean, she is the, the ultimate closer. Uh, I've always thought that about her. Like, uh, she's incredible at, at recruiting people to work for her. And, um, she's an amazing person. And, uh, I was super excited by working for her. I was super excited by the twin cities, super excited about where the school was going. And it was a great move for me. I mean, at Cincinnati, I was still, all my colleagues were still former teachers mm. of mine. And I just felt like I was never going to get out from underneath being the mm -hmm. former student as a, as an, as a professor at Cincinnati. And so, um, yeah, she flew Connie up. I mean, mm -hmm. another example of recruiting one-on-one, she, she flew my, my spouse up and treated her really well and took us out to dinner and Connie fell in love with the twin cities too. And we ended up, we ended up taking the position mm -hmm. there. And then that's where I was for 15 years before coming here. So what 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 was that school like? What what? I mean, 15 years, a lot can change. But what was the kind of yeah. sense of it and the direction of it? And well, Cincinnati, or sorry, Minnesota um, was was kind of put on the map by Ralph Rapson. Mm -hmm. Ralph Rapson is a mid-century modernist. Um, architect uh, who went through MIT. He worked for um, worked for Saarinen, worked for um, uh, I 
believe he worked for Aeroserenin. Um, he 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 was involved in, in Cranbrook. I I don't exactly have the history entirely right, but there's this constellation of relationships that Ralph brought um, with with MIT and and the mid century modernist you know mafia um, with with you know Serenin and 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 Eames and the the whole crew and. Um, he was really a really important voice there. In fact, before he even died, which this is pretty rare, they named they named the building Rapson mm. Hall. Um, uh, he was really the 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 voice and the figurehead of of that school for a long time. And so, um, you know, for for uh, quite a while, Minnesota was one of the top, you know, five or ten programs in the country. Um, and it really has this legacy that was um, driven by Ralph. And it has, it also has this legacy of, of, of being a school that is taught primarily by mm. practitioners. Um, uh, so, um, you know, even while Ralph was the head of the school, um, he was, he was always practicing and he has all kinds of, of, of buildings that were built in the Midwest and around the twin cities. Um, really, really an amazing architect. I had the privilege of, of meeting him before he passed away. He, he, and he was still practicing the day he died. He died at age 96 wow. and, um, was, was still a true still architect. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I got to have lunch with him several times. One, one time he, he had me bring a bunch of my sketchbooks and he looked at my sketchbooks and, his, he loved my sketchbooks. His big criticism was I didn't have enough people mm, in my sketchbooks, mm, um, which is really a kind of a lovely observation. And because um, uh, his work was always about people. It was always about the human experience. Um, uh, so, so I think Minnesota has this legacy of, of modernism and, 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 and is a practice-oriented um, school. Um, um, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a really great, solid, solid program. Um, and, and one that I was really proud to be a part of, um, it's, uh, both an undergrad and a grad program. And, and, um, you know, I, I think to this day, the twin cities has one of the best architecture communities mm. in any city that I know of. Um, it, the the average firm in the Twin Cities, I think, is 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 as good as a lot of the best firms mm. in a lot of other cities. Um, the work there is really strong, and the the practice community is really quite talented. And I think that's a reflection of the 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 solid education that students get at Minnesota. I mean, it's just a really really solid, good school. Um, uh, and and you can see that reflected in the work there. And I, and I think the work in the Twin Cities is a combination of things. I think it's, 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 um, there's a, there's also a design culture in the Twin Cities that you don't see in a lot of other cities, a kind of arts culture that you don't see in a lot of other cities. There's a, there's a kind of tie to it's, uh, to, to Scandinavian mm. heritage that you don't have in other cities. And so all the, this confluence of forces gives you the, the kind of really robust practice community that they have there. And it's a, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy or, you know, back and forth because you have a good practice community and that means you have good 
practitioners who are coming and teaching the students, they're producing good students that go into the practice community and it's like a kind of a, um, a self-perpetuating machine that I think started with, with Ralph Rapson and um, Tom Fisher, the dean there, um, was a dean for 20 years wow. in Minnesota and, and um, you know, was a former editor of PA Magazine and really, you know, through his vision and connections really uh, brought a strength and in, 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 um, robustness to the school. And then Renee Chang um, was the, the head of the school there for 10 years and um, did an amazing job of cultivating the talent there. Wow, yeah. It, se- it seems like sort of like our community in some ways of, of a, a bit of an island, right? Like it's it's not like the East Coast or Houston or something where there's a lot of schools around, but it's sort of its own center in some ways. Um, so yeah. you were you were teaching there and then uh, you became chair at some point, right? And and what were yeah. you working on while while you're there kind of directions of pushing the school or or types of work? Yeah, so I, I became the head of the school um, in 2014. So 2014 to 2019, I was the, the head of the school. And um, I, uh, you know, I was, I was uh, appointed the head of the school internally. Um, so I was, uh, you know, a, a associate professor at the time and, um, and, the, the dean held a, an open um, application process, and I, I applied to, to be the, the head of the school and, and got the position. Um, um, you know, we, I think this, the school always, um, the school always prided itself in um, its ability to, um, to uh, produce really, really strong practicing architects and in its ability, its students ability to mm-hmm. draw and, um, drawing was always uh, a legacy of Ralph's. And to this day, I think the students from Minnesota can, can draw really beautifully. And I think, you know, I tried to, I tried to advance and, and, um, and strengthen that legacy of the school, um, that it, that it would be a practice oriented school that where the, the students um, really uh, um, develop and cultivate their thinking through visualization, through the act of drawing, which I know you, Adam, can relate to. And I know I know the kinds of drawings you produce and the, the kind of drawing that you teach. And so, um, you know, it, it's something that I bring with me to this school and, and something that um, I've always been interested in. I've always been a drawer and um, both both hand and digital. And, um, you know, I, I tried to really elevate that in my time as as um, as head of architecture there. Um, the other thing I tried to do was to um, really promote the school through um, publications. I did um, about 10 or 12 different publications in the five years mm. that I was there, um, promoting various uh, symposia and exhibitions, um, doing program booklets, um, little, these little, these little yeah, booklets nice. on my shelf right here are all from um, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and um, that was, you know, kind of uh, 
promoting the school and and shouting from the rooftops what a great school it was was a, a big part of my my passion um, being had there and, and I tried to do that as as much as I possibly could. Yeah, it seems like um, EDI issues have always been. Uh, seems like they've been a priority for you, and and it seemed like that school at Minnesota was pretty diverse, and that seemed like a a, a priority that you pushed as well or worked for. Yeah, I mean, I um, I I attribute my passion for. Um, equity and diversity to Renee hmm. Chang, who, who was my, my, my predecessor at, um, <clears throat> at Minnesota, you know, from day one, even, even when I was doing things like, um, I was, you know, an assistant professor in 2004, um, pulling our lecture series together, or when I was, um, coordinating a studio and, um, organizing, a juried review. Um, from day one, Renee would always remind me to bring in women to the jury, to bring in women to the lecture series, to bring in um, diverse voices. And, you know, that, that reminder, which was um, uh, always present in, in my conversations with Renee, um, has, has always stuck with me and, and, um, you know, Renee's just been, um, a, uh, national leader. Her, her voice has been so important in, in the architecture discipline, um, in terms of equity and diversity and, and, um, you know, she's, uh, done so many things the, the list is, you know, um, almost too long to even, um, mention, uh, you know, she, she wrote the, the, the AIA standards, um, around equity and diversity and, but, but, but one of the things that she did, um, just as I was becoming head of the school is she worked with the AIA Minnesota to, um, do a year long, um, workshop for leaders in the community around equity and diversity. And, um, I participated in that workshop and that's a thing. That was back in like 2015, mm -hmm. 2016, something like that. That was the thing that really like blew my mind open around um, the issue, uh, the, the the importance of um, equity and diversity in architecture, and in the in the in the problem, the huge enormous problems with the status quo of the way things are. Um, and ever since that year long course, um, you know, I've I've um, devoured readings and <clears throat> workshops and other courses, other trainings and, um, and, and try to be a champion, um, to the best of my ability, uh, for bringing diverse voices, um, into, into the discipline of architecture, um, whether that's, you know, the students we bring into the school or the, um, faculty who we hire to teach in the school or, um, the communities that we work with in the school or the communities that architects work with in the, in the profession. Um, um, there, there's so much work that, that needs to be done. Um, I hired, uh, when I was head of the school of architecture at Minnesota, I hired, um, Jennifer mm. Newsom, who actually is on our mm -hmm. lecture series yeah. also, she's coming in a couple of weeks 
Um, she's just an amazing architect and, and academic. She's now teaching at Cornell University. And um, when she did her job talk, um, she started out with a number. She just said a number at the beginning of her talk. And I think, I think it was in the 200s. It was like 273 hmm. or something like that. And we were all like, she just hmm. let it sink in for a minute. And she was like, I'm the 273rd black woman to be licensed as an architect in this country. And I mean, it, you know, when you hear these numbers, you realize the problem that we're facing. And, and I think she was only like the third or fourth woman, you know, in Minnesota to be licensed as an architect or something like that. And I think we only have, I think one or two African-American women in, yeah. in Colorado who've been licensed. Um, so those kinds of disparities when compared to the population of the state um, really bring into focus the, the, the enormity of the mountain we have to climb and the, the progress that we still have to make. And so, you know, I've been working on, on, on this issue um, and, and asking this question for over five years. Um, I, I probably was later to the game than I should have been, but um, you know, I try to ask it at every turn. And, um, and, and it led me, it's one of the reasons I came mm. to the school, the school, um, it, actually Minnesota is not a very diverse school. Minnesota is a pretty, a pretty homogenous school. Um, it has some diversity and it's growing more diverse every year, but um, it's a pretty white school. And uh, we have gender diversity. We had gender diversity there, but most architecture schools do now. Most, most architecture schools are um, around 50% women, 50% men. Um, but one of the reasons I came here was, was because of the incredible, um, the, the incredible diversity of the undergraduate program here. I mean, and in, in even since I first came here, we've, we've grown in our diversity in the undergraduate program. We're now, I think, at uh, 60% minoritized hmm. students in our undergraduate wow. program, which is yeah. just an incredible number for a, a big state school like, like this. Um, and th yeah, that was one of the reasons that it, that attract, that was one of the things that really attracted me to this school is that there's a, there's an opportunity here to really make a difference and to really, um, <clears throat> change to the conversation that we're having in, in the architecture. Profession. What do you think the difference is there? Like, uh, Minneapolis twin cities is a fairly, has a lot of some diversity to it, right? Uh, there's a, um, I would think it's pretty similar to Denver, but what what's the thing that that makes that difference here? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a couple different things. Um, one is that um, CU Denver um, has has a different attitude towards transfer students than than mm -hmm. Minnesota did. Minnesota's and the other thing you have to keep in mind is is Minnesota is more like Boulder. <clears throat> you know, uh, Minnesota is the big, sat, the big, um, central institution mm -hmm. of the, of the university system, just like Boulder is. And, um, CU Denver is one of the, one of the three other campuses that are satellite campuses. They don't call us a satellite campus, but, um, if, if we're not a satellite, know, we're a, a small planet like a or something. Campus. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, we have a we have a really um, I think open. Well, so so first of all, we're we're a largely um, commuter oriented uh, school. Um, we're also a very transfer friendly school. And so students can go to community college for a year or two years and then transfer into our program. And that, so that opens, that opens our program up to students who wouldn't ordinarily get into our school through the traditional pathway. Um, and because we're, 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 we're a commuter school, um, whereas Minnesota was, had, had a commuter dimension to it, but was much more of a residential school. Um, where you lived in dorms and all that stuff. Um, there's just a different, a different feel here that I think opens this school to uh, students who would ordinarily feel marginalized in a, at, a, at a university. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, I think, I think those are some of the key differences. Yeah. That's interesting. So you, you, after 15 years, you moved here, changed, yeah diversity was one yeah. uh reason um what what mm -hmm. were what were some of the other reasons for making such a a big change yeah i mean um i also applied to dean positions when i when i was at minnesota and um was was interviewed for some dean positions i ultimately felt like i needed to grow a little bit more and and um and and kind of cut my leadership teeth a little bit more before going into a dean position. Um, so the when I when I applied here, when I applied at, at CU Denver um, and 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 you know got the position, um, it was a it was a a really amazing day for me, first of all. Um, you asked the question, what's what's you know an, an hmm. amazing moment for you? And being being offered the position here was a pretty amazing um, time in my career. Um, I was incredibly honored and flattered to be offered this position. Um, and 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 you know it's a it's a huge privilege to to sit in this role. Um, and one of the reasons I'm so proud of it um, is because I I really I was competing against um, a national. Um, audience of candidates. Um, when I when I was appointed head at University of Minnesota, I was appointed internally, but here I was in a national search and competing with people from all over the world for for this position, and so um, that was uh, 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 for me, um, I think a, a big accomplishment for me in in, in my career to to interview um, against some really formidable candidates for a position like this. Um, and once I once I got the position, um, and I, I was offered a few other positions as well, um, you know, several things were really exciting about this role. One is the diversity of of the students. Um, two is the faculty who are here. Um, I you know I, I I researched the faculty and learned more about the faculty, and and I think the the faculty here are um, really an amazing group of people. Um, I was attracted to. Um, the design build mm. program that's here. I think it's um, one of the one of the, you know one of the things that people know about this program from outside. Um, you know they know um, that this is one of the top design build programs in the country. Uh, um, 
you know, I would I would put us in one of the, as one of the top probably five mm-hmm. design build programs in the country, and, and that that was really exciting for me. And it it you know when I came here, I when I was looking at the school, I, I felt like that would have an impact on the school's attitude towards materiality and making and and um, and that kind of thing, which is something that drives my own research. So so that resonated with me that the diversity and then the the uh, the um, the kind of the making culture that's here and the and the faculty who are here and then and then Nan Allen the, the dean of the school um, was incredibly exciting um, and and is is really an amazing person to to lead our our college and and um, you know she was so exciting to talk to and and um, offered me so much so many resources and so many so so many um, uh, also a lot of uh, a lot of uh, independence you know she said from the beginning you know this is the the, the architecture department is is um, you know I, I treat it as as um, you you do you all do what mm-hmm. you want to do with the architecture department and that kind of um, giving us that kind of independence was was really exciting to me I, I didn't really have that in Minnesota so so that and then and then the last thing was was the ability to start my own lab. Um, you know that was incredibly exciting for me. The the um, the promise of my own space and research assistance and and equipment and uh, a budget for the lab and things like that was an incredible an incredible opportunity for me. And um, you know we're we've been we've been working in the lab for you know the whole time I've been here now for, for going on three years and we're really starting to pick up momentum and do some exciting things. And, and, um, you know, I would have never had that opportunity had I stayed in Minnesota. So it was, it was something that I could leverage coming here and it's been really, really, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I, I remember that, that chair search and I remember your, uh, your lecture, it, the entitled "Boring," uh, it's always stuck in my mind of, of yeah. thinking about this idea of boring in different ways of boring into boring into different things, and and was was uh, very excited that that you were the one um, chosen, uh, and you know, so you 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 come here, um, and we've kind of hit the your academic part. But let's get back to the sort of uh, the human, <laughs> the human part of 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 yeah. that practice of of your your partnership with Blair, and what yeah. especially interests me now, uh, having a firm remotely with a partner in a different place, of always wondering how okay, yeah, how people yeah. work that way, and and how you guys have have kept this sort of uh, parallel research and and firm and projects going and. And what's the sort of lineage of that, and and some of the projects that that stick out there? Let's see if I could slam any more questions yeah. into that one question. But uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, I love I I love talking about that, and and um, I mean, first of all, I just love Blair. I mean, he's like my best friend, one of one of my best friends. Um, I'd say you know, next to my brother, he's my my best friend, and. Um, He's just an amazing person, and you know a, another great memory from my past um, is the day I met mm-hmm. Blair and the day we started working together. Um, 
you know, we just clicked instantly and, um, he's one of the funniest mm-hmm. people I know. And he just keeps me laughing all the time. Um, he loves to draw caricatures of me. So if you ever <laughs> want to see me really embarrassed, you can ask Blair for his uh, catalog of caricatures that he's drawn. Of me Is that one of the years. ones on, on your website, um, your profile picture on the website? Yeah. 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 Today. That's fun. Yeah. But some of them are way less flattering than that one. <laughs> um, so Blair and I, I think Blair and I subsist through through our, our love of um, explicitly non-architectural things. Um, we, you know, we, we, we always have felt like uh, a bit of, like we've had a bit of imposter mm-hmm. syndrome in the architecture field. We've always, you know, we we like a lot of things that architects don't typically like, like we're big sports mm. fans. Um, we love to talk college. We love to talk mm. college football. We can talk college football. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. We need another. to talk more college football. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. My, my Bearcats are, um, they're doing pretty well. This yes. year. Yeah. That's a good year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we, we, uh, I have a funny story about the Bearcats. When I went to school at Cincinnati, um, the the Bearcats were so <sighs> bad. They were, I mean, they were horrible. And Nipper Stadium is one of the yeah. great stadiums in all of college football because it's right in the middle of campus, which not very many are. Um, and they were so bad that I remember they would give tickets away to the students and I would go to Nippert Stadium Um for a quiet study <laughs> during football games. That's funny. <laughs> There'd be bring, nobody there and you could just kind of like, bring your models there yeah. and make some models. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Not the case yeah. anymore. They're pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so, so, you know, Blair and I have this love of like, you know, these things, these like little Japanese, um, kid robot dunnies, yeah. um, we have um a love of of you know video games and um all kinds of stuff that uh you know i think we can relate to one another and we find funny and we know that in a in a in a gathering of architects it would just <laughs> fall flat so i think you know we've he and i have always have always resonated that way like we don't necessarily drink the Kool-Aid of of architecture and I think it's actually served us really well. Um, we trust e- each other um, to the ends of the earth and back. And so um, when one of us is busy, the other one can drive a project. When the other one's busy, mm. the other person can drive a project. And we know that we can trust what each other is doing. Um, but we love to work together. We love to spend time together. And um, you know, to this day, I spend hours a week on the phone or on Zoom with Blair every week. Um, either in his meeting. So he has a lab up at uh, UBC called Hilo Lab. And that's part of the reason why we named our lab Lodo Lab. This kind of Hilo yeah, nice. Lodo has a nice kind that of worked resonance. Out well. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and so um, I meet once a week in his lab at, in Lodo and he meets once a week with, with my crew here in Lodo Lab. And um, so we're constantly working on things together. He's got projects that he's primarily driving there, and I've got projects I'm primarily driving here, but it's all under the umbrella of, of human practice. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think we've always 
at heart had um, an interest in the periphery, the periphery mm-hmm. of architecture. And that's another reason we both resonated. Um, you know, he, he, he can draw like nobody I know. I mean, his drawing abilities are, are second to none. It's amazing. He's got his start in, um, in medical hmm. illustration. That's what he originally went to school for. And so, um, his, his like interest in, in, um, in illustration and in drawing is, is, um, is, is really, uh, valuable. And then, um, you know, we both have this interest in, I think, much more kind of object scale, human scale um, interventions. Um, most of our work tends to be things that we can make and produce, you know, at the scale of an object or at the scale of, of, of a person. Um, so I don't know, there's all these like kind of weird things that aligned where we met and we knew it was a kind of a perfect match. Um, from yeah. The and, you know, you mentioned that you, you, you've sort of been always haunted by this by your thesis and how that manifests itself in your work yeah what's what's the project with human that that best sort of captures or gets closest to that thesis of yeah um i think the the project that is maybe closest to the or maybe thesis or just the spirit is, of the thesis um, maybe you know not not necessarily that but yeah well, both in, both both in terms of what we were doing, what I was doing with the thesis, and in terms of the spirit of the thesis, the project that is probably the closest is a project um, that we did maybe eight years ago, seven years ago, called uh, Verback hmm. Law. Um, it was a project that we ended up winning a, um, an Architect Magazine R and D award for. Um, and it was a project where we would, where, where, um, well, we use plastic. So my thesis was all about plastic and the, the Verivac wall is a, is a plastic wall. Um, I actually have samples of it. I know this isn't a video <laughs> podcast, but I have we can put it up yeah. in my office that I could show you. Yeah. But, um, uh, it, it was, it was a wall, um, that was a redesign of the front lobby space of the architecture school at university of Minnesota. Um, we were um, having our, I think we were going to, we were, we were having our hundredth anniversary or our hundredth, yeah, our hundredth anniversary of being a school of architecture when I was there. And Renee Chang was the the head of the school at the time. And so she asked me to, to kind of reskin the, hmm. the lobby um, because we were going to be having like thousands of alums into the school to celebrate the hundredth anniversary. And so we did this, um, this wall, this Verivac wall, um, that was, um, um, an acoustic intervention, but the space was real bouncy acoustically. It was kind of echoey. And so we designed this, um, this, this plastic wall that was, um, informed not by how we wanted the wall to look, but how we wanted the space Mm. to sound. So the wall was kind of parametrically driven by, um, by uh, uh, a study of, of sound waves and, um, and, and how we wanted the, the space to sound. And so it's a modular wall system made out of, um, made out of these, thermo, these thermoformed plastic panels. And they're made in a, a really unconventional way. So typically when you thermoform plastic, you make, a, 
you make a, a mold. So you, you, you create a, you, you usually make a mold out of like aluminum or wood and you mill it and it's in, and then you, um, suck the, you know, you heat up plastic, you pull it down over the mold, you suck the air out and it makes a perfect carbon copy of the mold. And then you can make like thousands of that mm -hmm. same shape. What you can't do in traditional thermal forming is you can't make mm -hmm. variations because those molds are really expensive. So as soon as you make um, a variation on the mold, you've just doubled the cost of whatever you're doing. And if you make another variation, now you've tripled the cost. So um, what, what we did is we came up with a variable vacuum forming system, which allowed you to get um, variations in shape out of the same mold. So essentially what we did is we had like a, a frame with cables stretched across it and the cables were, um, were um, uh, adjusted um, on a per panel basis in terms of their location across mm. that frame. And then we would heat up plastic and instead of vacuum forming the plastic, we heated up the plastic and then, and then slumped it mm. down inside the frame and the plastic would ooze between the, the cables. And so the closer the cables were together, the smaller of a little mm. bump or pimple you would get the further apart the cables were, you'd get a big droop. And then what we did is we took each panel and we ran it through a hot wire cutter. And so the, wherever the bubbles were real high, they mm. would get schneided off and form a hole. And wherever they were lower, they would not, they would not hit the hot wire cutter and they would, they would maintain their kind of bubble shape. So what we did in, if you zoom back out, what we did is we created a paramet, uh, 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 we created a grasshopper script that said where we wanted the wall to be acoustically absorptive, we would want the, the plastic to mm. get cut off. And then we would backfill it with um, acoustically absorptive industrial felt. Where we wanted the wall to be more bouncy, we would let the plastic droop less and it would be a bouncy wall. So there became a direct corollary between the relationship of the, of, of the spacing of the wires and, um, and, the the direct bounciness or absorption um of the of the wall so there's this like set of kind of parametric relationships that says we want the wall to sound a particular way <clears throat> and perform a particular way and so its shape is driven by that and what 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 i what i really love about the project is that there's this incredible unpredictability to it like we could never really predict exactly the shape of that slumping plastic because it would change every day depending on the humidity mm. in the air, the air temperature. If we left the plastic heated up for one second longer, one second shorter, it would slump differently. And so there was this beautiful kind of unpredictability to the final project that I talked about earlier where um, our hand was not part of the what, what, what our hand definitely was involved in the in the formation of the final project, but it wasn't solely responsible for the formation of the final project. What the material was just as actively a contributor to the final project hmm. as we were as the as the hmm. designers. So I think it it it's most closely related to my thesis, and it also most fervently drove work that we did subsequent to it yeah for you is that is that under the umbrella of sort of this idea of of hyper -nat natural uh like with your book is that a, or is that a different sort of string and concept yeah that's kind of a different thing i mean hyper natural well 
No, it's related. It's related for sure. Um, I mean, Hypernatural was really driven by, um, it, so I wrote that book with my colleague, Blaine Brownell, who served as the, as the um, head of the program after I left. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He actually went to Rice with me and then he came up to Minnesota and we taught together at Minnesota for a while. He's now the, um, the head of the program, uh, the chair of the program at UNC Charlotte. He just started there um, last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so uh, Hypernatural really was initially driven. I, when I was in Minnesota, I <clears throat> was asked um, to uh, teach a class on biomimicry. And I didn't know anything about biomimicry. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really um, maybe had a mild interest in it, but I, I didn't really know much about it. I was still an assistant professor. And so um, Renee thought it could be a, maybe a driver for my, for my research. And um, so I actually had the opportunity to meet Janine Benyus um, and her partner, Dana Baumeister. Janine wrote the book, Biomimicry. Mm -hmm. She coined the term. Um, and she started the biomimicry guild and, um, and, and is, is, um, an amazing person. And so I, I wrote the syllabus for biomimicry in, in, in collaboration with her, which was a huge privilege and honor to work with her. And so I started to get this interest in bio, biomimicry in its, in its, in its, you know, original term, um, and started teaching studios and, and seminars. And so I probably taught, 10 or 12 studios and seminars on this topic of biomimicry while I was at Minnesota. Blaine came and Blaine has had been writing these books called Transmaterial, which many, many architects have on their bookshelves. Transmaterial is a pretty famous book. And, uh, and he asked me because of his interest in material, if he, if we wanted to co-write a book together on the intersection uh, work that happens at the intersection of biology and architecture. And so that was the that was the kind of driver behind writing that book. Um, that book totally changed my view on 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 the relationship between biology and hmm. architecture. It made me really skeptical of of the term yeah. biomimicry, um, and it's not a term I really use anymore. And it also opened my eyes to thinking in different ways about the relationship between biology and architecture. I got more way more interested. In materials that are that are that are grown and evolved from biological materials and through a partnership with biology, than I did in mimicking biology, um, and that's kind of where my work is um, now. But the the relationship between Verbeck Wall and Hypernatural is that in both cases, the people who are interested in in working with biology have to relinquish control. They have mm. to let go of control. And this idea that uh, good design can can actually paradoxically come from relinquishing control as opposed to exerting mm. more control is something I, I, I'm really interested in and something that um, became a, a, a central theme in the book, Hypernatural. Hmm. Yeah, that seems powerful. Um, yeah. I liked I liked what you, you said earlier about wanting to move towards things that scare you or, or that bring you fear or that challenge you. Yeah. So what, what is that yeah. thing right now? What, what's the next thing that you're, you're working towards that is a little scary or, or hard. 
Yeah. Um, I think it's taking my lab and the research in the lab um, to the next level, like really um, getting that work out there and truly collaborating with um, experts who don't think like I do. We're collaborating with a forestry biologist. His name is Brian Buma. He's a forestry biologist at uh, CU uh, Denver. And um, we're, the, the project that we're doing, which is called NursePod, is, um, is like a little biodegradable seed that you would put out in an area that had been um, burned down from forest fires that would um, nurse uh, sapling trees to life and help them to grow. Um, one of the problems with replanting after a forest fire is that a lot of the sapling trees mm. just die because they don't get enough water and they don't they don't have the right conditions. So we've designed this little this little nurse pod, which is three um, D printed out of biodegradable material that will um, nurse a uh, sapling tree back to life and and allow it to mature and grow into a full tree, and. Um, that project, because of climate change and because of forest fires that we're facing and all of the natural kind of phenomenon that are turned on their head right now, is in, has the potential to be incredibly relevant. Um, and, um, you know, this idea of, of going after a really, really big pot of money and then... Um, using that money wisely and smartly and facilitating it and allowing it, allowing the, the lab to grow because of it um, is, is kind of scary. It's something that faculty in the sciences do mm. all the time and they're comfortable with. But um, in my, in my own research, you know, I've always worked with, worked on a shoestring budget mm. and I've always worked with, you know, dribs and drabs of, you know, a few thousand bucks here or there. I've never, you know, stared down the, barrel of a, a huge, you know, let's say NSF grant or something like that. And I'm not saying we're going to get one. We may never get one, but I feel like the work is poised and positioned better than it ever has been to really garner some, some interest and some big funding. And, um, if we were to, to land something like that, it would be exciting, but also really, really yeah. scary. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I, I, uh, I just really appreciate you as a, as a leader, I think, especially like within the school. And I was, like I said, I was excited to have you at the school and I, I grabbed you on your very first day in Denver and, and got you to do a, a, a graphics review. And yeah, you were the first, you were the first <laughs> review that I did when I started yeah, as chair of the school. I feel like school. you used to have like your bags with you or I something. I think it was like yeah. on the first day. Yeah. <laughs> hadn't, yeah. hadn't moved in yeah. yet, but, and I, I, you know, it's just, you, you, um, you don't disappoint and it, and it just continue to kind of raise, raise the school and, and be a, a strong leader who also, who also listens well and uh, pushing for more equity and, and inclusion. And, and then also within the city with AIA and everything else. Um, yeah. I just, I appreciate you and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I'm honored to be here, Adam. And thanks for the kind words. Um, it's really, really fun to finally uh, be able to connect with you on your, on your podcast. And um I'm super happy to have you as part of our academic community. It's been, it's been great getting to know you. So thank you for having Thanks. me. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. See ya. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect 
www.ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.